Most people know that California agriculture is big. But unless you've spent time in the Central Valley, it's hard to imagine how big. Farms stretch for uninterrupted miles, sprawling across tens of thousands of acres. Take the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, for example, in the Westlands Water District. Westlands spans 600,000 acres, about the size of Rhode Island, with fewer than 600 landowners. And until recently, there was actually a federal law in place designed to prevent this kind of large-scale development and make land accessible for smaller farmers. A place like Westlands, some say, could have been a thriving center of small-scale farming if the law had been enforced. So what happened? Well, we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about that. And a really surprising part of what happened is that in California's not-so-distant past, in the late 70s and early 80s, a group of activists called National Land for People sparked a huge debate about this issue. At that time, people were actually talking about land reform in California. This is that story. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the second podcast in the Cal Ag Roots series produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies. Cal Ag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming that shed light on current issues in agriculture. You can read more about our stories and see some really cool illustrations related to the stories on our online hub at www.agroots.org. Stay tuned for more stories, and please reach out and let us know what you think about this one. That land is so rich you could eat it with a spoon. I have actually farmed out there, and I have seen what it grows, and it's, uh, it is astonishing. That's Tom Willie, a pioneering small farmer in the Central Valley, referring to some of the land in the Westlands Water District. Willie would know, too. While he wasn't directly involved with the battle at the center of our story, he was in the area at the time. He farmed for a while in Westlands and has farmed in the San Joaquin Valley for decades. He went on. They, they used to say that any idiot could be a good farmer out there because the soil was just so good. And, and I mean, it, and it's true, absolutely true. And there's no question that 160-acre farms could have been successful out there. That figure, need. 160 acres, is significant. In fact, that's the number this whole story revolves around. You'll hear it again and again. Until 1982, there was a law in the books, the 1902 Reclamation Act, that said that farms that were 160 acres or smaller were legally allowed to get subsidized water from the government. Any farm bigger than 160 acres could draw water for a certain amount of time and then had to sell their land in 160-acre parcels at pre-water prices. In other words, they had to sell the land for dirt cheap. Most of us can't really picture a plot of land that's 160 acres, but that's much, much smaller than the kind of massive-scale agricultural development that characterizes California farming in general and the Central Valley in particular. And the Reclamation Act required that farmers live on their farms. The Reclamation Act had a really specific purpose. It was supposed to be a safeguard against consolidation of land and power and wealth at public expense. Some say that if that law had been enforced, California agriculture would look very different today. To help us understand this, we talked with Mary Louise Frampton, a civil rights lawyer and a key figure in this story. So in the 1970s, looking at a map of the Westlands Water District, all you saw were these huge holdings. There were no 160-acre uh, family farms there. Uh, so these large corporations were holding on to much more land than they were entitled to um, under the law, 
and justifying that um, on the grounds that that was the only way that Westlands could be farmed. That is, farmed big. Mary Louise was part of a group of activists called National Land for People that ferociously challenged that pattern. National Land for People was formed in 1964 by George Ballas, a journalist, a photographer, and an energetic, populist visionary. George teamed up with a group of people who were committed to bringing attention to the fact that water law was not being enforced in California, and that a small collection of large landowners were getting rich off of what National Land for People called government water welfare. To tell this story, we got a few of the NLP activists together for a reunion on a hot summer day in a small apartment in Fresno, where George's wife, Mark Maya Ballas, now lives. How about that? Wow. It's been a long time. Maybe, maybe 30 years? George passed away in 2010, but Maya generously invited us into her living room, which was decorated with large, beautiful landscapes she's painted of the valley over the years. She welcomed in fellow NLP members. Some of them hadn't seen each other in decades. There are a lot of characters in this story. You don't have to worry about keeping all of their voices straight. three years old, and I know they're not three anymore. No, no, not even 33. When NLP was the most active in the 1960s and 70s, there were a lot of people in the Valley concerned about this issue. Everyone from fruit and vegetable growers to farm worker organizers were involved. There was Burj Bulbulian, Armenian raisin grape grower and self-described farmer frontman with a sharp wit and socialist politics. Mark Lasher, a social worker from New York who wanted to work for justice in what he called the belly of the monster. Mary Louise Frampton, a young civil rights lawyer with a novel and successful approach to suing for enforcement of the law. And there was Maya Ballas, of course, George's collaborator in life and a talented graphic artist. This was a broad, diverse coalition, and they were all in for the cause. Here's Maya, who would eventually become George Ballas's wife, talking about the first time she met George at an event that he was photographing. I heard this click, click, click in the background, and I said, oh, who is that guy? And my friend, who had gotten me organized to do this, had said, oh, that's George Ballas. He has this really pornographic picture that you have to see. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, it's this map of the Central Valley and the power structure. And I said, what? <laughs> I thought all the robber barons died. <laughs> that was, in, I, I saw that in California history, right? They'd, no, no, no. When you see this map, you'll understand that there is a huge power base that still exists. Fired up about what they saw as a wave of water crimes being committed in the valley, the small volunteer team pieced together detailed records of questionable land deals in the Westlands Water District. The map that Maya refers to there shines a light on these crimes. When Maya saw that map, she got involved. What our research demonstrated was that instead of selling to individual owners, what the, what the co corporate farmers decided to do was they could have 160 acres for all their children, they would list unborn children, and then one of the, the, the most outrageous was there was a, a waitress named Amelia Popovich in one of the coffee shops who showed up as one of the landowners, and when, when uh, I can't remember who it was in the office, but somebody called her to find out if she realized she was a landowner, yeah. she said, what? <laughs> 
And then when we got the tape recorder and called her back to have her <laughs> go through this again, she, oh, oh, yes, I am, yes, I am a land. So clearly she had, had spoken to somebody and realized they used her name. But that was just another indicator of how, how they were circumventing the law. As Mary Louise Frampton puts it, What they were doing, as, as these maps demonstrated, was that they were actually, instead of selling to small family farmers at pre-water prices, um, they were engaging in these sham deals to friends and relatives and continuing to farm the land. So none of that land was really accessible to small family farmers, certainly not to farm workers. In response to this, NLP wanted the original promise of the Reclamation Act to be carried out so that small farmers and farm workers could own the 160-acre parcels they had been promised. They drew one of their principles, land belongs to those who work it, from Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata. There were some people who thought that that was a communist idea, or a, certainly a radical idea. We didn't see it that way at all. We thought that this is, this is about bedrock American values. George didn't name the group National Land for the people, which might suggest that the land should be communally owned. It was National Land for people, individuals, private landowners, small family farmers. Here's Mark Glasher. You can't miss the New York accent. So we would see how it, how it appeared on Grant on, on the ownership of the land. But then we wanted to also see what about the operation of the land? Who was receiving the water bill? And so had all these names, hundreds and hundreds of names, but there was only 137 uh, water bills that were distributed to the 600,000 acres. They created an organization committed to revealing these issues. George remodeled the garage of his seven-acre organic farm on Fresno's west side into a solar-heated headquarters for NLP. The group shared their findings in monthly newsletters with thousands of supporters. In those newsletters, George Ballas pulled no punches. He called corporate farming businesses the biggies. And a favorite graphic was an oversized dollar bill that read Westland's Water District on the top and $2 billion boondoggle on the bottom, with the line, paid for by U.S. taxpayers running up the side. George often talked about what he called the big lie, the idea that Westland's could only be farmed big because small farmers just wouldn't be able to make it. That idea still has a powerful grip on our imaginations about what's possible in the valley, and challenging this was never easy. Here's Burj Babulian. I'm not going to tell you that all the farmers admired me for my courage. They all thought I was nuts. Burj told us about a time when he turned to another farmer at one of the hearings, and he asked... I asked him, uh, how is it you and I make it, and we don't own 160 acres? And in my case, it's shared with two families. And I'd been to Europe probably five times by then and had three children who were graduates of universities. And you can't make it on 160 acres? What a bunch of crap that is. Oh, there were many, many small farmers um, at, all up and down the valley who were, in fact, farming. They were farming, you know, 40-acre parcels and 80 on land that wasn't as rich as the land in Westlands. So they knew from their own practical experience that 160 acres was quite sufficient um, to make a good living. Remember, that's the 160 acres promised to small farmers by the Reclamation Act. National Land for People reminded people of this promise all across the valley, and eventually all across the country. Mark remembers another hearing this way. I remember the real estate agent from out in Fireball, you know, like was saying, 
we, we constantly get the argument that there are no, no one's, out, no one's really wants that land out there and that there's no, no one interested in that. And he turned around and he asked, is there anyone in the audience that would be interested if that land would be actually broken up according to the law? And jeez, the auditorium stood up. Tons of people, you know, like, you know, like small farmers, farm workers, hundreds of people stood up. So the NLP developed what they called a spiral strategy for addressing this problem in the valley. This strategy included doing really detailed research on illegal land sales, calling for hearings and testifying before Congress, leading what they called reality tours of the valley for activists and politicians, and developing alternatives to the mainstream food system, like cooperative buying clubs. The group also made many trips to Washington, D.C., NLP members squeezed into a tiny van to drive across the country to testify at congressional hearings, staying with friends or at the YMCA on their no-to-low-salary budget. Ballas didn't soften his argument when he was before Congress, exclaiming things like, This isn't a hearing, it's a pep rally. Here's a description from Mark of what NLP faced when they testified in front of Congress. George got up to present, and while George was just starting to speak, Chip Vashayan, our congressman from our area here, he gets up and he has an unlit cigar that he's been chewing on. And, 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 and I mean, it was, this is classic cartoon. And he got up and he walked over to the, to the chairman of the committee, spoke into his ear for a few minutes, went back, sat down in his chair, leaned back, kept on chewing on his cigar. And then the chairman said, Mr. Ballas, what you're presenting, have you submitted that to, to this committee? In the, you know, and George said, yes, it's all submitted into the record. And he said, well then, thank you. You're, you're done. And I looked at George, I'm going, you know, what can we do? There's nothing we could have done. So it was clear that NLP had to do something more. Scraping together a little money, the NLP hired Mary Louise Frampton in 1974 to sue the Department of the Interior for not enforcing the Reclamation Act. So we decided that we needed to litigate, but the problem was that there really wasn't um, a legal theory that would form the basis for a a lawsuit that had a chance of winning. Uh, so we discussed various different strategies um, and finally came up with this idea of showing the disconnect between the intent of the law to support family farmers um, and the way in which the law was being enforced. And we thought if we could expose that disconnect by requiring the Department of the Interior to have these public rules enforcing the law, um, that that might um, make the whole process much more um, what's now called transparent and in a way nudge the government into enforcing what the intent of the law was. Um, and we th had no thought that we would <laughs> have any chance of success on that theory. And in fact, when I talked to veteran um, lawyers in the field, they laughed in my face and they said, um, that's a novel theory, but you will never be successful. But 24-year-old Mary Louise, who the papers took to calling rosy-cheeked, 
proved the veterans wrong. It was like a um, thunderstroke. We did not expect to get any relief at all, much less the, the relief we were asking for. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Against all odds, Mary Louise won a court order halting land deals across the West. And the NLP continued to win appeal after appeal. The Valley buzzed with controversy, and NLP members were labeled communists. Even as Valley newspapers wrote of the biggies preparing for battle, Maya Ballas reported that it looked like we had won. So the NLP's victory meant that the Reclamation Act now had to be enforced. But that's not as simple as it sounds. To enforce a law, government agencies have to make rules about how they're going to do that. Back in the Valley, the Department of the Interior, who was responsible for enforcing the law, held hearings on the proposed rules that they would use. That's when things got really intense. When they traveled to the town of El Centro for one hearing, NLP members were met everywhere they went with people who wore buttons saying no on 160. All the waitresses at restaurants, the people they saw on the street, they all had one. And we were also met um, with, the, um, with the FBI who said that there had been what they decided was a credible threats uh, against, against us. So they insisted on giving us FBI protection. So I remember sitting in my little motel room and looking out the window and seeing the FBI agent out there um, guarding me. And just since I was on the, uh, I'm sure had already had an FBI file for my other activities, it, it wasn't very reassuring. <laughs> since I was the only woman testifying, and I, and I happened to be very pregnant at the time, six months pregnant, we thought it would be good if I went first, because who was going to shoot a pregnant woman? According to Mary Louise, growers went to outrageous lengths to silence the NLP. I guess their, their fallback position was if we decided to testify despite the threats, they wanted to make sure we couldn't be heard. So um, they flew their little planes and helicopters over the hearing. These hearings were in an outdoor stadium in El Centro. So they flew their planes over the outdoor stadium to drown out what our testimony was. This was the climate NLP faced. As Mary Louise told us, the San Joaquin Valley was a feudal society. It was very difficult to stand up to the power structure. There were real consequences. Most of us in NLP felt that we had, um, on some level, we had been successful because we had brought the big growers to the table um, and in a way that they had never experienced before. And then in 1980, former California Governor Ronald Reagan strode into the White House, bringing with him a whole new administration and an entirely different Department of the Interior. Some activists speculate that promises to overhaul the Reclamation Act actually helped him to get elected. Whether or not it was a campaign promise, Reagan's administration worked with Congress to pass the Reclamation Reform Act. Defenders of the new law claimed Reagan's changes modernized the act, updating it to reflect the costs of farming in the 1980s. From the NLP point of view, though, the law was totally gutted. With the acreage limitation raised to 960 and the requirement that farmers actually live on their land eliminated. Mary Louise reflects. Well, it was, it was obviously disappointing, um, but in a way not unexpected. Uh, we, did, we had neither the money nor the power on our side. Burge read this as a classic capitalist maneuver. These people just simply had too much power. Uh, you know, it's, it's an old 
capitalistic trick. You violate the law as long as you can, you get caught, you pay a minor fine, and then with what profit you made by violating the law, you have the law changed so the crime becomes legal. In 1982, NLP admitted defeat on the water issue. Ballas wrote in an NLP newsletter, We lost not just because of biggie bucks. We lost because what we advocated is against the warp of our time. But, he insisted, their work was not over. He wrote, The struggle to create a democratic, responsible, and sustainable food system goes on. Now we turn our full attention to creating a new cultural, social, economic reality on a small scale. Uh, instead of trying to say no, we were blocked there, we would do yeses. And so George and I focused on solar energy and were able to um, start a project called Sun Mountain. So NLP atrophied and died, but the foundation went on and we were still involved with sustainable agriculture. As an antidote to the bitter loss, the Ballases and Lasher uprooted NLP from the valley, planting it again on 40 acres they called Sun Mountain in the foothills east of Fresno in the Sierra Nevada. Like we said, George Ballas passed away in 2010, but Maya's been kind enough to bring his voice into our story by reading George's unpublished memoir. Here's Maya reading George. Then in early October... A week after Congress finally buried the 160, we stopped this day because for the first time I noticed a line of grand old Palo Verde trees in front of the camp. The Palo Verde is a desert tree which lives on little water. It is leguminous, fixes nitrogen in the soil, and it shows a continuous bloom of bee flowers. I collected a handful of pods from the most prolific tree, and we headed down the road thinking about where we could plant the seeds. So George and Maya took valley seeds and they planted them up at Sun Mountain. And George pumped his relentless Energizer Bunny energy into the property until he died there. Maya tended those Palo Verdes and other trees until finally the Sun Mountain project got to be too much and she moved into a senior apartment in Fresno. NLP didn't win the water battle. California farming continued to consolidate and corporate land holdings ballooned. It's easy to superimpose modern cynicism onto this National Land for People story and wonder whether their Reclamation Act enforcement fervor was foolish. But you'd be missing something if you wrote off NLP's story just as an interesting piece of history. John Haywood here, and I purchased Sun Mountain two years ago yesterday. John Haywood is the current executive director of the foundation that NLP became. It still exists up at Sun Mountain. When I asked John if he saw the NLP effort as a failure, he had this to say. It's still here, and so I would say it's too early to tell. And, you know, that just the, the lifetime of a single individual is, is very myopic. And as long as this thing persists, and as long as we keep bringing the energy and ideas and doing something, then it was successful. Those Palo Verde trees are actually still blooming up at Sun Mountain. John showed me one last time I was up there. And the NLP is still alive, too, just in a dormant form, maybe weathering a prolonged political and social drought. We don't know if the ideas of National Land for People will weather the 30-year drought they've experienced. But today, with water again on everyone's mind, Californians have a rare opportunity to rethink how we want to use this precious and highly subsidized resource. Is it to deliver profit into the hands of a few, or is there another possibility? 
What is striking about Burj Babulian, George and Maya Ballas, Mark Lasher, Mary Louise Frampton, and all the other NLP crusaders is the tremendous optimism and idealism that they brought to their work. NLP's heyday was 30 years ago, not 100, and yet they held an entirely different vision for the valley, one that would have broken down massive land holdings held by white landowners and transferred them to small farmers and farm workers of color. They looked at the stark, mostly unpopulated land of Westlands and imagined a string of thriving communities and a base for democracy in the valley. Their optimism, it seems, was their ultimate political act. This story was produced by the Calag Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. We could never have made this story without serious help from our fabulous audio producer, Aubrey White. Big thanks also to everybody who spent time discussing this story with us. Mary Louise Frampton, Mark Lasher, Burge Bobulian, Maya Ballas, Tom Willey, John Haywood, Cliff Welch, Jonaki Jagannath, Mario Sifuentes, and the rest of the Cal Ag Roots Advisory Council, particularly Lisa Morehouse for her editing advice. Thanks also to Gail Wadsworth and Mike Corville at CRS, and to the Robert and Patricia Switzer Foundation, California Humanities, and a wonderful group of crowdfunding donors who supported this project. Please check out the Cal Ag Roots Story Hub at agroots.org and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. You might also want to check out the archive at the California Institute for Rural Studies website at www.cirsinc.org. That's cirsinc.org. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.